Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget there's a podcast at the uh, top of the webpage. If you're on YouTube, you can hit subscribe. And please uh, share this story with everybody you know. So this is part three of my series of interviews with Bill Black on what he calls control fraud. Please watch the earlier parts as we're picking up where we left off. The docuseries titled The Con breaks down what happened during the financial crisis of 07-08. Here's another clip from the trailer of the film. Addie Polk was specifically targeted for who she was because she was living in a poor area. She didn't have any direct, you know, any direct descendants. She was widowed and she was a minority. You can go in mostly poor minority neighborhoods and you would have people canvassing the neighborhood, knocking on doors, putting flyers in your mailbox. Say, we can help you. We can get that roof fixed. We can get you new windows. And sometimes they would have information on your house that you didn't give them. They would just look up your house. That was commonplace. The weak, the meek, and the ignorant are our best targets. That's the words they put on paper to describe those folks. So it, that has meant that the quintessential victim, you know, if you wanted a single face, that face would be of an elderly black woman. That's the quintessential victim of predation in the financial sphere. Keep in mind, when you had all of these little mortgage companies, these people had to find their victims because they had to keep things going into the pipeline. They had to keep up a certain number. It started in the inner city, but like anything else, when it was getting good and the money was, then it branched out and everybody became fair game. And this is why we have to stop seeing each other by color. Because if it starts over there, it's gonna come over here sooner or later. And so as a result, it's now a national problem because everybody knows somebody who lost their home. The system said that Poor and minorities are disposable. The system says that that was simply the cost of doing business. The mortgage company said after Addie shot herself, well, we'll forgive the loan. You should have never made the loan. You should have never made the loan. We'll forgive the loan, but she shot herself already. People can say all lives matter. I say black lives matter, not because white lives don't matter, but because traditionally when something like this occurs, no one comes to help. Black lives matter, Eddie Polk matters, and anyone else who has lost their home, who have lost their life, they matter. I hope, I pray that we can come to some sort of common ground that people need protection from those who are seeking to make profit. People need protection. Now joining us to discuss the history and present state of control fraud is Bill Black, who's in the film, The Con, and was a, an advisor to its producers. Bill's an American lawyer, an academic, an author, a former bank regulator with expertise in white-collar crime and public finance and other topics in law and economics. As I mentioned, he's the author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. And he's an associate professor in economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Thanks for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. So Addie, Addie Polk wasn't just victimized by some local mortgage brokers. By the time she's affected uh, by all this, uh, this business model has become a business model directed by the senior executives of most of the largest financial institutions on Wall Street. So how do we get from uh, local corrupt mortgage brokers in 
California, Orange County, to a massive national fraud that, that puts the whole economy into deep crisis. That is the great story and the story that has been missed almost entirely about the nature of the con. So super quick reprise of the second phase of the savings and loan debacle uses commercial real estate loans. So it's not predating upon poor black and Latinx folks. It's mostly going after white guys. 1990, new variant of the fraud arises. Same basic accounting scam, appraisal fraud added in, but come some new elements. The new elements is the ammunition they're using for the fraud is no longer big $100 million commercial real estate loans. It's your home. It's the loan on your home. And they're targeting Blacks and Latinx households, and they're doing it through loan brokers who they've given the absolute worst incentives. Now, in 1990, this is occurring only in Orange County and only in savings and loans. So it's a tiny little thing. And it's never been seen before, but our examiners, even though it's completely novel, like COVID, you know, get it right and they get it right right away and they go to and they go look we know you're overwhelmed dealing with this massive fraud scheme with the commercial real estate because california is one of the epicenters but you got to take some people and take them away from that incredible crisis and reallocate them to this new problem and you got to stamp it out before it becomes a second epidemic of disaster. And the bosses at uh, San Francisco, and I was one of them, but um, Mike Patriarch, who was the big boss, so he gets uh, certainly the deserved credit, said, yes, that's what we'll do. And so from 1990 to 1993, we deliberately drove this new fraud plus predation plus loan broker scheme out of the savings and loan industry entirely, such that by 1993, there was only one savings and loan in the nation doing this kind of fraud plus predation scheme. And that was called Long Beach. Let me just add one little thing for people that haven't watched the other episodes. At any rate, a quick definition of predation. Okay, so predation in this context means that you're deceiving people to massively overpay for homes and interest rates um, that you wouldn't do to normal people under market terms, right? And this is targeted overwhelmingly at Blacks and Latinx folks. So it has a discriminatory and the motivation for someone to sign this is they probably wouldn't otherwise qualify for the loan. Um, the transaction wouldn't qualify. It, it's not even so much they. That's the focus on the borrower. But this uh, this is a multiple fraud scheme, right? One fraud scheme is the appraisal. So they're extorting, when I say they, the banks are incentivizing the loan brokers to extort the appraisers to dramatically inflate the value of the home. Now, the bigger the home value, A, that means you can approve transactions you would otherwise not approve, but also the bigger the value, the bigger the fee uh, in, in terms of uh, the home price. And so this makes sense for all the thieves. Uh, to inflate the appraisals. It also makes the home look safer, and that's part of the art of the fraud scheme, is making a loan that is almost certain to fail look incredibly safe, right? So if I inflate the appraisal, it looks like, wow, that's a really, <laughs> you know, that home's worth 400000 and they only borrowed 380000 <laughs> on it. It must be safe. But what's the motivation for the borrower? They must know that this house is way appraised way higher than their neighbors. 
No, <laughs> no. Again, you're the reason you target vulnerable people is that they're far less likely to understand what the true market value of their home is. And and who of us goes and knows there's an extortion racket by bankers to inflate the value of homes by extorting appraisal appraisers and blackballing them if they're honest. That wasn't in the papers anywhere. Which of us would have thought? Because we would think it's crazy, right? Why would a lender, a lender's great protection against loss is an honest appraisal? Because these are secured loans, secured by the true market value of the home, not whatever the appraiser says. So an honest banker would want a very conservative appraisal not to massively inflate it. So no, normal people don't think in this way at all. Normal folks and the people that are first time home buyers, you know, they're the least likely to be able to go, wait a minute, this, this home is massively overvalued. So that's one of the two kinds of frauds. The other key underwriting fraud wasn't, again, this is novel in uh, 1990. And so it, the industry didn't yet call it by the name that the industry would soon adopt behind closed doors. They called them liar's loans. And so people have heard that term and they've assumed the borrower must be the liar, right? No. <laughs> the loan broker knows the magic ratios that you have to hit to get the loan approved. The loan broker knows the magic ratios, and I mean debt to income type ratios, um, that uh, also get you a bigger bonus, right? A, a kickback paid by the bank. And those are kept secret on a term sheet that is uh, by contract can't be shown to the borrower. Not that the broker wanted to show and inform uh, the uh, borrower in any event. So the lies are put, and this is confirmed by the state investigators, are, it's the lenders and their agents who put the lies in liar's loans. Now, what's a liar's loan? It's where you don't verify the borrower's income. And it is super simple to verify a borrower's income, even if they're self-employed. Because the United States for decades, precisely to make this easy, allows banks to get an agreement under which we authorize the bank to get what's called a transcript of our taxes. And that just means an easily machine readable. And so for next to no bucks with virtually no delay, uh, and they can charge us a fee if they want to even, right? Uh, they can get, the bank can get exactly how much income we reported on our tax returns. And Here's a key thing. How many of us inflate our income deliberately on our income tax returns? Not Nobody. too many, right? For obvious reasons. So it's a super reliable thing. So it's absolute BS that liars loans were developed for self-employed people that could, where you couldn't verify their income. That is a total lie uh, about all of this. So there, these two fraud mechanisms are employed typically simultaneously by the loan broker. And again, if I inflate the borrower's income and they, we will to go forward in time, there'll eventually be statistics on this. And on the average inflation was 60% <laughs> or more. That's crazy. Of the borrower's income. No, it's not crazy because it makes the loan look safer. All right, let me remind people of something you told me about four times until it really sunk in my head. Because everyone's thinking, well, why would the banks do this? And your answer was, don't think banks think the individual scooping up the fees because they don't mind screwing their own banks. Oh, no, the, indeed, the, the famous article by two Nobel laureates in economics is looting the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit. You bankrupt your bank as the CEO and it makes you a ton of money. 
Uh, and if you, you want, I can explain why that works and why trying to do it uh, by making good loans doesn't work as a sure thing. You want that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, let me just remind people about the title of your book. The best way to rob a bank is to own one. Go ahead. Okay. So what we, we consider the counterfactual. What if we tried to do the same scam, but by making good loans instead of incredibly crappy loans, right? So how many people who have incredibly good credit are unable to borrow money in America? Yeah, it comes pretty close to zero. Okay. Yeah, pretty close. So if I want to expand, remember the formula, the recipe, as we called it, this uh, for fraud recipe, the first element is grow like crazy, which means typically 50% or beyond, right? And literally, there were 300 fraudulent savings and loans growing at a minimum 50% annually. Now, the rule of thumb in the industry is 25% growth and you die to give you an idea of how insane this is. And now everybody from COVID understands exponential, right? If you're growing 50% annually, it's not linear. It goes like a hockey stick <laughs> up incredibly, right? Everybody got the hockey stick. Okay. Even the non-Canadians and non-Michiganders like me. So... I want to grow really, really fast, over 50% annually. How do I get good loans? Say I'm making 500,000 loans and I want to grow 50%. I got to make 750,000 loans. But I'm going to make them, I'm trying in this theory to make them good loans. But there aren't these other 250,000 people who have great credit quality and everything else um, who have any difficulty getting loans. So what do I have to do? I have to buy market share, as they call it in business. I have to reduce my price, my interest rate that I charge. Is that a very good way of maximizing profits? Not so much, right? Cut your price. But worse, what happens... What will my competitors do? They'll do the same thing. So they don't lose their best customers. And so at the end of the day, is this a great fraud strategy? No, all of us lose money right, under this strategy. Conversely, I can grow 50% a year because there are tons of people, millions, tens of millions of people in a country the size of America that cannot repay their loans. And I can charge them a premium rate of interest because they can't get loans as easily. And because statistically, they're likely to be less financially sophisticated than other people who already own homes and have much higher incomes and all those types of things. So these, this is a great thing. As Akerlof and Romer, the two Nobel laureates, agreed in this paper on looting, this kind of fraud is a sure thing. And you deliberately make terrible loans that you know are going to bankrupt the bank. But you, the CEO, are going to walk away wealthy and hundreds of thousands of others are going to walk away wealthy. All the loan brokers, all the officers along the way with that $2 trillion in fees generated by these uh, scams. Okay. So that's why we're, we're still doing that basic looting strategy when we move from using commercial real estate to using your home. But now we're going to add this element of predation to the problem, right? So we target them, we drive them out of the industry, and then we get the second greatest compliment of my career. All right, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. We meaning you, the regulators. So I happened through weird <laughs> stuff. I was out in San Francisco uh, as the head of enforcement and litigation for the West region of the Office of Thrift Supervision. And we're based in San Francisco and we have jurisdiction over Orange County. So I end up Zelig-like, you know, right in this thing. So I'm in charge 
of driving these folks out of the industry, right? Um, and we do. And so by uh, the end of uh, around, you know, middle to end of 1993, there's only one left. And it's called Long Beach Savings. And now, as I said, I got these two great professional compliments. One was that Keating, uh, the worst fraud of the second stage of the debacle, the one that we've described in other things, uh, you know, uh, demanded that I not be allowed to come to meetings because he so feared me. Keating's the guy who's that head of that long, the bank you're talking about. Lincoln, no, Lincoln Savings, Lincoln Savings. Lincoln Savings, okay. Okay, so that's the one with the five U.S. senators, and that's still commercial real estate type stuff. Everyone should watch part two, and they'll get the whole story. So this second compliment comes from the even bigger sleaze that it will turn out in history, though we didn't know it at the time. He was piss at, you know, type. Um, he was, and his name was Roland Arnault. And he decided... He couldn't beat us. He couldn't buy us off. He couldn't bully us. You know, he couldn't politically bury us. And so he voluntarily decided in 1994 to give up federal deposit insurance, convert his savings and loan, which we had jurisdiction over, into an unregulated mortgage bank that would be in what was will soon be called the shadow financial sector because it was not subject to any meaningful regulation. So again, they gave up federal deposit insurance for the sole purpose of escaping us because without federal deposit insurance, we had no jurisdiction over him. Now, we make a referral to the Department of Justice as he's leaving because the Department of Justice still has jurisdiction over the anti-discrimination laws and he's predating on blacks and Latinx folks, right? But in 1994, he leaves, he converts um, to a mortgage bank, he goes to the shadow to escape all regulation. Think of it as a sanctuary, you know, like uh, allegedly Cambodia was in the Vietnam War and such, where they could <laughs> mass his troops. And he becomes the Johnny Rotten Appleseed of America. That for the next 12 years spreads like a vector, like a mosquito uh, spreads malaria throughout all the industry, not just the little pissant industry, but the most sophisticated, largest banks in the world. Indeed, ultra-conservative economists, including you Chicago economists, describe this. And I swear that what I'm about to say is not irony. They're finance profs. They're incapable of irony. <laughs> their, their line, their conclusion is there was a sub, substantial amount of fraud at the most reputable U.S. banks. So even when you find substantial fraud, you call them reputable. <laughs> and and the and the poison seed here is is this the model of shadow banking get outside of regulation. Well, this is in in our type of jargon, we call this a creating a criminogenic environment, and that's a direct steal from science when we talk about pathogenic environment, right? If if you destroy all the sewer systems and uh, you know, defoul all the water and such, you know, like opposing armies did, throw dead animals in the wells and things like that. You will make everyone sick or dead uh, who drinks from the well. And that's what a vector does in this kind of environment. It just spreads at epidemic type levels. And that's what AmeriQuest did. It spread this all through originally the shadow but then it spread back in, once people like me had left, back into the regulated industry, even where there was deposit insurance. So it reconquered the regulated world once they effectively destroyed regulation, which is occurring around this same time period, right? So this is, uh, people need to recall 
that Bill Clinton was even more than Bush one or Bush Bush two, the great destroyer of financial regulation in the United States of America. And that was through the reinventing government uh, mantra uh, in which they basically ended uh, these kinds of prosecutions. So this is Roland Arnal, who becomes this, this, as I said, the chief looter of America and nobody's doing anything to him. Now, part of it is nobody's doing anything to him because he's in an, the shadow uh, financial sector. But it's not entirely true because, as I said, we made a referral to the Department of Justice because of the discriminatory lending, the predation against Blacks and Latinx. And the Justice Department had jurisdiction over that even though the institution didn't have deposit insurance. And so they brought a case. And that case was settled, which is, you know, the way of the Department of Justice. And the prosecutor of that case, the senior guy, a few late years later, becomes governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. And not incidentally, he's black. And not incidentally, he becomes the leading defender of AmeriQuest and Roland Arnal. And they buy off some public interest groups as well with contributions and such. And so AmeriQuest became famous for its ads. They won all kinds of awards for the ads. Some of them were quite clever. They had two blimps. They did, they owned the uh, Super Bowl halftime show in one of the years and such, right? And they made fun of people who actually underwrote loans properly, you know, like they were old fuddy-duddies uh, type of thing. And they became the biggest and the baddest, right? Uh, they grew basically about 50% a year for roughly 12 years with no one doing anything effective to them, in part with Deval Patrick covering their flanks against their discrimination. Who owned it? Roland Arnal was the primary uh, owner. There's a wonderful book, if people want to read it, um, uh, highly recommend it, The Beast, um, about this, and it goes through many of the the details, and many of them are quite gory, uh, you know, along the way. I was just going to ask, did some of the large financial institutions have any ownership stake? Oh, but of course. Um, but AmeriQuest, for example, again, that's what it changed its name to, uh, was famous for its art departments. In the art department was... You know, uh, God help me, I, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Well, that for them, it was whiteout. Uh, so the art department was where they would take the um, statements, the loan applications that borrowers had filled out honestly, and they'd white out the information and put in false information to be able to get it, the loan approved and a higher fee uh, type of thing. So... Yes, it was uh, it was tied in immediately with oh let's see oh this guy named Michael Milken. <laughs> so right, tell Mil people tell a lot of a lot of people may not remember or know who Milken is. So quick. So Michael Milken was a junk bond king, uh, pardoned of course by President Trump for a whole series of felonies. Um, and he, in particular, had a, uh, a stable of captive savings and loans and insurance companies that he used to manipulate price. And he uh, effectively ran, though they never had the title, uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert. And Drexel Burnham Lambert um, was successfully sued and prosecuted by the Department of Justice, but there was a diaspora uh, of the Drexel personnel and wherever they went became a new vector that spread fraud throughout the, the system. 
So yes, AmeriQuest, all the biggies basically uh, tended to uh, buy from uh, AmeriQuest, uh, huge amounts. Again, it became the largest purveyor of um, originator of fraudulent loans using specializing in liars loans and appraisal fraud uh, that I've just described. Okay, now you just said something which I think is the, the beginning of the next phase. You say the financial institutions are buying from AmeriQuest. So what's that all about? What are they buying? Why would they buy these things? Okay, so this is again the one of the leading myths about the crisis, that it's just all about the secondary market, that because you could sell your crappy mortgage to what was called the secondary market, which essentially means Wall Street, you didn't care about quality. But that doesn't make any sense at all, right? You're selling to the most financially sophisticated people in the world who are going to end up with the losses. You think they can't figure out that if you have no skin in the game, maybe you might be tempted to do bad things? You think they don't know about liar's loans, about appraisal fraud? <laughs> they were heavily involved themselves. They knew all of those things. The focus again, as you said, I said it maybe six times, I'll say it's the, another six. Never focus on the bank or the corporation focus on what happens to the banker. And from the standpoint of the banker, simultaneously, the bankers who were selling the crappy mortgages in the secondary market and the bankers who were buying the crappy mortgages in the secondary market, they both got fees, huge fees. And so it was the financial version of don't ask, don't tell. Mm in all of this, right? So no, the secondary market is not essential to this crisis. The first phase of the savings loan debacle had virtually no sales to the secondary market. Ireland actually ended up with a bubble that relative to GDP was twice as big, a real estate bubble that was twice as big as the United States bubble. And there were virtually no sales to the secondary market, right? You, this is not a necessary element. All right, just really fast for again, secondary market means uh, a financial institution on Wall Street buys a whack of these toxic, crappy mortgages and then sells it to some pension fund and they get fees in every direction. Yeah, so usually what happens is they buy and they aggregate. In, so instead of a bunch of single mortgages, they create a mortgage-backed security. And that mortgage-backed security might be backed by the cash flow from 3,000, sometimes 10,000 mortgages. And so they would then sell the MBS. And then there's another stage. I'm sorry, I know it's not super simple, but the, they would sell the mortgage-backed securities and they would add to somebody else who would aggregate the mortgage-backed securities and create something called a collateralized debt obligation, a CDO. And sometimes they would do second and third tranches of those things, as not just tranches, but uh, yeah, CDO squared, CBO cubed, and such. You can keep this charade going, is the point, as long as you can defer the losses. And that's where I uh, actually left off, if I recall. Um, I was starting to explain uh, the... Um, poetic, the only poetic phrase out of the great financial crisis uh, and the savings and loan debacle. And it's this, it's a saying, it's a real saying from the trade and it is a rolling loan gathers no loss. <laughs> All right. So a roll to roll a loan is to refinance a loan. And that's the key, right? You want to, you're making crappy loans. Well, what's the obvious problem with that? They're going to default. But you, so you want to make the defaults occur much later. How do you do that? You simply refinance the loan, charge new fees, extend even more money. They use the new money to pay off the old money. It's a variant of a Ponzi scheme at this point, obviously. I, I was about to say, th this is a classic Ponzi scheme. It's, it's more like when we started part one, I talked about this scheme in Moldova 
where three banks played this game and some people actually went to jail at the end of it. And nobody ever went to jail here, but it's the same kind of Ponzi scheme. The one bank. This, that's the interesting thing, right? Because at the very time that this new phase, the third phase of the savings and loan debacle, which is this Orange County predation plus liar's loan plus appraisal fraud um, scheme. People are already going to prison. While AmeriQuest is doing its, and Long Beach is doing its things, Roland Arnall is doing his things, over a thousand executives get convicted and hyper-prioritized. CEOs are going to prison during this fame. So why didn't dissuade, why didn't this dissuade the next generation of fraudsters? Because they could move to the shadow, right? Again, these prosecutions are only going to be effective if the regulators make the criminal referral. Is AmeriQuest going to make a criminal referral against Roland Arnau? <laughs> I don't think so. So who's going to do it? There is no federal regulator in the shadow. There's virtually no state regulator, certainly none meaningful for most of the time in the shadow, all right? So again, this is like, and conventional economists said the shadow was the ideal sector because it wasn't besmirched by deposit insurance. And for conventional economists, the great Satan in finance is federal deposit insurance because it supposedly uh, it eliminates effective private market discipline. Oh right? yeah, there's lots of, that, lots of that. Right, well, the, obviously they're not disciplining, they're funding, and they're funding not a little, they're funding to the tune of trillions of dollars. And not just that, to the tune of trillions in fees off of all of this, right? So, that's what's going on. And then I'll show you the uh, the key and how incredibly different it had changed. So Roland Arnall in our era would have gone to prison. Meaning when you're when the regulators are going after SNL. Right. So in the in the late 1980s, early 1990s, right. um, Roland Arnall um, it, it would have ended up in prison uh, if he had continued in the regulated uh, sphere. Here's what happened instead. Eventually, well, first I got to describe this. It isn't simply that the federal government didn't act against the Roland Arnals of the world. They actually competed and it was called, it was called a competition in laxity between the regulatory agencies, right? And and a conventional economist thought that was a great thing because regulation is the great Satan. Again, anything by the government, so anything that weakens regulation must be good. So, okay, we're federal government. The first part is obvious, right? How do you have the competition in laxity? You got your rules, your, your own federal rules, right? But then they got clever. And so the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency and the Office of Thrift Supervision competed for who could most aggressively preempt state investigations and prosecutions. So in the United States, we have this doctrine called preemption where the federal government can exclude and overwhelm state law in lots of circumstances. And so the, both of the federal regulators said, come to our regulatory agency, be a member of our agency, be regulated by us. Ha, hint, hint. <laughs> there nothing real is going to happen. And we will not only not regulate you ourselves, we'll make sure the damn states can't look at you. And they extended this so aggressively that they actually argued, they lost some of this in the Supreme Court, but they actually argued 
that you shouldn't, as a state AG, attorney general, even be allowed to investigate and document frauds by places like AmeriQuest. This is coming from Congress? No, no, this is coming from the two federal regulatory agencies. So let me back up still another thing. Why this insane competition? Well, some of it is, you know, laissez-faire insanity from the people running the agencies, but some of it is just downright preservation. To save money, which is insane, we don't fund the Office of the Control of the Currency, and when there was such a thing, the Office of Thrift Supervision, through federal tax dollars. We fund them through assessments on the industry members. Well, that sounds good, right? That sounds progressive. But what happens if we put into receivership the biggest places we regulate? <laughs> we lose all our income because our income comes from fees paid by the industry that we regulate and only by those. And they don't have to stay with our agency. They can go freely switch between these agencies. So if you do your job properly and put the frauds into receivership, you're firing yourself. How's that for an incentive system? So and that's you can, by, de by design. That's by design. So, um, you had this insanity of, well, to preserve our jobs, we're not only not going to do our jobs, <laughs> but we're going to make sure the damn states can't do their jobs. Through what this. year are we in? So this uh, is 2000-ish is when it starts really ramping up to incredible extent. So by, again, 1994 to 2000, growing 50% a year, is AmeriQuest. And again, we're starting to get real close to hockey stick, Bart. You know, <laughs> it's going to shoot the hell up. And it's going to become the biggest fraudulent lender in the world. It's a place that most people have never even heard about, right? Okay, so that's the backdrop on that. While all this is going on, there there is such a thing called Congress. There are supposedly uh, committees uh, responsible for oversight of these sorts of things. Uh, we're in the period, what, of the Bush administration. And I'm assuming they're just... Which Bush administration? Uh, well, this would have been, well, I don't know, probably both. But right but, now we're in the first, right? Okay, the second. But, I mean, we're in the right. second now. But this is my message. This, this starts is Bush in Cheney. 1990. Right. And it persists to 2008. This is everybody. <laughs> you know, choose your political leader of any party during an immensely long period. And the president is going to look terrible because the president was terrible in these circumstances, right? Of both parties. Clinton cuts the FDIC staff by more than three quarters. He cuts the Office of Thrift Supervision staff by more than half. They are utterly gutted. And then the, they appoint leaders who literally show up and want to show up carrying a chainsaw to indicate how much they want to destroy any remaining regulations. And, you know, a chainsaw is picked because it's not a precision cutting instrument. <laughs> so, again, this the, the, the whole development from 80s and through the 90s into the 2000s and then the financial crisis, it's all a construct by design. It doesn't just happen. Yes, but nobody is that smart to be able to foresee you know, all of the implications. Yeah, no, of but I, I, no, but, uh, you know, you start and then another set of opportunities arises and you jump on them. Then another set of opportunities, but the political class is in on as yeah, the whole process. But it, it's an, it, it's a slightly more complicated story. And that's an interesting <laughs> story because of that complication. Okay. 
So, in 1994, 1994, a miracle occurs and Congress does the right thing. And it adopts the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act of 1994. And that act says that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, and only the Federal Reserve can ban all predatory loans, basically, regardless of whether the lender has deposit insurance, federal deposit insurance. So the shadow is covered. There's just one tiny little problem with that. What you think? I don't know. Go on. The Fed and only the Fed. Who's the chairman of the Fed? At that time, 1994, Alan Greenspan. I was about to say, is that Alan Greenspan's Greenspan's the answer to virtually every year? And why is he the answer to virtually every year? Because President Clinton reappointed him twice, even though he was a Reagan appointee who was literally part of the Ayn Rand cult. He was actually trustee of Ayn Rand's will. Jesus. I I don't know if people are going to get my reference, but he's like the Curtis LeMay of finance. (laughs) Curtis LeMay is the madman that ran the Stratcom and dropped atomic bombs on Japan. Well, and wanted to drop them on everybody. On everybody. (laughs) And was was appointed by Democrats and Republican presidents one after the other. And that's the point. Democrats reappoint. Bernanke a very Republican Republican reappointed by President Obama after being a total disaster as the principal regulator. And who was his principal regulatory lieutenant who was a total disaster? Where's our banking industry concentrated? I know, Wall Street. Who's supposed to regulate them? I know, the New York Fed. Who the hell was running the New York Fed in all those years? Tim Geithner. So, obviously, as soon as Obama came in, he fired Tim Geithner, right? Or got, you know, induced others to fire him. Oh, no, he promoted him to Secretary of the Treasury and made the old crisis his crisis instead of fixing it. And, you know, the Department of the, the Secretary of the Treasury, he's also in charge of um, this thing called IRS. They do taxes. And what was famous about Geithner? Oh, I know, that he cheated on his taxes. And it isn't just that he cheated on his taxes. When he got caught... Because they do a security review and they make you president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. When he got caught, they also told him, but you're past the statute of limitations on some of it. And so he refused to pay back the money where he was past the statute of limitations. I, you know, you and I are laughing and some people commented, uh, how come we're laughing so much? Because like, what else are you going to do? I mean, this is, it is, it is beyond uh, craziness. Okay. Audience, on many things, but I'm Irish. And the Irish decided centuries ago, it is slightly less painful to laugh than to cry. So that's, that's, that's my motivations in all of this. Okay, so... We got the great statute on a mostly bipartisan basis. In 1994, the very year that AmeriQuest goes to the shadow. And the Fed at all times has the power to stop in literally a day AmeriQuest's fraud and predation schemes, which are incredibly blatant. By the way, Michael Hudson is the author. There are two Michael Hudsons. This is one. Uh, this is the journalist Michael Hudson, as opposed to the economist Michael Hudson, of the Beast about all of this. Okay, so we could have stopped it, but there was no chance that Alan Greenspan was going to stop fraud. 
and Ben Bernanke then refused to use it. And then he finally used it after the market had completely shut down liars loans. And even then he deliberately delayed the effective date of the rule against liars loans for a year and a half. I don't know, because maybe there might be some poor schmuck uh, fraudulent lender out there that would be upset <laughs> and she got in the way. Okay, so back to the tent. We, you can see nobody in the federal government was going to do anything about AmeriQuest because only Alan Greenspan and very late in the game, Ben Bernanke could do anything and, you know, the world could blow up before those folks would act. But the states, the states eventually went after them and virtually all the states it was 51 state and territorial AGs and, you know, District of Columbia type things uh, brought this suit. And they got the largest settlement in history for consumer fraud by the states. What year is this? Uh, the suit, I think, uh, is 2006 uh, that it settled um, within it plus or minus a year. So just okay. before the whole thing really explodes. You got it. <laughs> Having been caught red-handed, we A, jailed Roland Arnault, or B, made him our ambassador. <laughs> well, I, I, we all know it's B. To the Netherlands. We all know it's B. Well, that's good. Isn't that where the Dutch diseases all comes from? So. What did the Dutch ever do to us? <laughs> <laughs> Sent us too many tulips. I don't know. All right. So Arnov becomes an ambassador and uh, the, what's the word? Crim criminogenic Criminogenic culture, environment. Criminogenic environment uh, blooms further. All right. Join us for the next segment of our discussion with Bill Black and we'll, we'll get it up closer to the 0708 uh, period. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. And thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button. Don't forget the subscribe button on YouTube and uh, share it with everybody you know.